Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. I am your host for the last time. Maybe I'll host again in the future. Benjamin Phillips is my name. And I'm joined, as always, by Matthew Waters. Yeah, I, I have to read the news, as Ron Burgundy said. Um, no, you. this has been fun. I've liked being not the host. So maybe we'll revisit this formula at some stage. We'll find another Twisty Turny TV show that I've watched Oh, I don't know though, because you're going to ask me questions like, "Is he is he her normal type?" And then I will curse you. Yeah, one last time, nothing ever ends. Watchmen, it's come to an end for now. But Tom King just announced a comic that we might want to talk about. So <laughs> yeah, but considering the fact that he says he's finished issue twelve writing mm. it, but it's not going to come out until after the pandemic. We're not going to do this at least for a year or so as like a little a bonus episode or whatever yeah. but as you said this is episode six of nothing ever ends the final episode mm. uh, in which rather than talking about two episodes we're only going to talk about one and that one episode is see how they fly written by nick hughes and david lindelof directed by frederick eo troy who isn't in the kind of normal stable of lindelof directors like stephen williams and nicole cassell was uh, he did one episode of Lost. He seems more like a HBO guy than a okay. than a, a Lindelof guy. Like he did That's interesting. an episode. He's, he's done like episodes of Westworld, and he was involved in Alias. Hmm. I imagine he was kind of more like maybe he's more in the in the Abrams wheelhouse because he's done Person of Interest and Fringe and whatnot. Was it Cassell who wrapped up Leftovers? Uh, Mimi Lida is the Mimi Lida. Who... Okay, well there you go. So, either way, it's one of his. I, those are like the big two directors on Leftovers that stick out in my memory. There's probably more that I'm. I'm just yeah. There's there's the guy who did the Hunt. Yeah, but he was a film director as well beforehand, and obviously worked did the Hunt in between. Yeah. But yeah, like you look at the final season of Leftovers, and it is a lot of the kind of big names who you probably remember for like just, each of them directed one a year or something. Yeah, but it's just interesting that like. When it comes to wrapping up your your precious baby, I would think he would go to one of the people that like he has that great rapport with. But I mean, I mean, the final episode is a good episode. I I don't think it matches the absolute highs of the season, but I also don't think it's the worst episode by any stretch. But like, yeah, just off. If it were me, I would want like my top dog on the wrap-up episode, but maybe they weren't thinking about it in those terms. Maybe they want the top dog on our big prestige flashback episodes and stuff like that, and those yeah, ended I, up being the best ones. So. Yeah, I think what happened was, I think Nicole Cassell had the option to either do episode 8 or episode 9, is mm-hmm. how I think it shook out, and 
which one are you going to choose? You're going to get choose to do the kind of big, tiny, whiny episode, or you're mm-hmm. going to choose to do. Not that this is a perfunctory end to the show, but it's definitely. You look at the last, like in fact, like every single season finale of a TV show that Lindelof has done since the end of Lost. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that none of them are bad, but they're a bit more conventional. They're a bit more conventional. Like, the, in, with Lost, every single season-ending episode would be, like, the biggest episode of blockbuster television that you would see that year. And they always pulled out all the stops, and they were always kind of... I, I, I would probably have every season finale of Lost in my top 20 or 30 episodes for the show. Mm. Like, some of them aren't as good, but they know they knew how to write an ending to a show. Whereas, it feels like after doing the more emotionally resonant finale that they did... For, for Lost that tied into the kind of big blockbuster feelings as well and one half of that finale working so much better than the other half <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you mean <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lindelof has kind of retreated more into that well with Lost the stuff that we nailed completely throughout the entirety of the show even in the patchy final season was the character emotional beats and that feels like what his strength is and it's what these like these two shows that he's done since Lost have definitely felt like they're more couched in character and emotion and trauma and all those different things. There is there is a significant increase in interest in interiority of the characters. Yeah. Like and even even in before the show, Lindelof said like he's been playing to tiny ten person venues for <laughs> most of the two thousand tens, and this was his first chance to kind of return to the the big stadium venue. And this show did not get the viewing figures that Lost got at the mm. peak of Lost Power, but this is a show that ends with them firing frozen squids at a giant floating UFO thing and blowing <laughs> up a man, and just like there is a sense of increased stakes in this episode. Yes, pomposity and and yeah, it, it's big for sure. There's there's a very large set and there's a lot of CGI happening everywhere. Um, yeah, shall we go? Shall we? Yeah. So let's touch on it. Like, I mean, we'll do our normal plot rundown, but I figured we'll start at the top with what are your feelings on this episode and what are your feelings on the show as a whole now that you've finished watching uh, all of it yeah like i said i don't think it's the best episode i also don't think it's the worst episode i will probably have a jonesing to rewatch, like the looking glass episode the hooded justice episode the um seven and eight again i probably won't be like man i just really want to see the finale of watchmen again um but that's not to say it was bad, and it's that thing of, like, you know, I don't know what else I would want. I, I, I was certainly not disappointed, I'll say that, and I, I think it's that they have masterfully spent eight episodes keeping me in the dark, but feeding me just enough to keep me going. Uh, not just enough, that makes it sound like I wasn't enjoying watching it, but, you know, they're metering out plot reveals, and it had me so hooked, and I would be thinking about the show when I wasn't watching it, and, like, really eager to watch the next one. And this one, I think just the nature of knowing it was going to probably be a one and done. And they do leave some things open for that you could bounce off. But I think Lindelof in his heart probably knew, like, this will be a one and done project. And I think just because you have to wrap it up, your first third of, of this episode does still pack a couple of, uh, of little surprises. And then once it sort of puts all of the pieces on the board, and from there it's a lot more straightforward... And 
you know, I I'm not asking them to like shock me to the very end or anything like that. That's that's not going to happen. I think it's just the nature of the beast of a big finale is you kind of have to stop fucking around and just finish your story. And I yeah, think... I think I think that's that's the thing here, which is that they've laid all the pieces on the table so thoroughly and completely that yeah. it it can only really play out in one way and. It's it, like it's different to again the lost finale in that there are pieces on that table that some people did not feel were satisfactorily concluded, or mm. people who watched the first episode are confused about the jumps they made to get to the final episode. Whereas yeah. you can watch the first episode of this show and see all the pieces they put on the board over the course of these nine episodes and go, yeah, no, this completely fits. And yeah. maybe that's disappointing in terms of. Then they haven't pulled the rug out from under you in any significant way. Mm. But endings are hard, and, the, and to have an ending that feels as of a piece with the rest of the show as this does yeah. is impressive. There, there are probably only a handful of shows that were big and ran for a long time and had a really truly great final episode. Um, and we're not going to sit here and name them. I'm sure you could reel off a, a few uh, off the top of your head, but I would. This has been my favourite Lindelof show. I was, you know, I was big into Lost until I wasn't, and then I sort of mainlined it to finish it after dropping off it for, like, two seasons or something like that. You know, you got me into Leftovers, but I don't know if it's just I inherently just vibe more with the superhero genre, or if he genuinely has just, you know, each iteration has gotten him better at what he does, or having a better group of people in the room with him this time, better actors to play with. I don't know what combination of things it is, but just, I think this works better for me, and it might be that there's less of it, and that forces it to be more tight and neat and all fit together. Like, in a world where The Leftovers ends after the first season, like like the book does, like the book ends and, and you shocked me when you told me, like, oh, and that's the end of the book. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> How was that at the end of a satisfying narrative? But you know, in a world where leftovers is one season, would it have been better? I don't I don't know. But I know that this is my favourite of the Lindelof shows and I think it is fitting that, you know, when you are mirroring this incredibly revered book that like you know we talked about it a lot about how the book works like clockwork and it's like almost too neat and everything is so perfectly intricate and i think it makes sense to have a show that sort of mirrors that yeah and i i I appreciate that out of it like i'm always gonna want more like (laughs) like i was like oh no there's none and my life has a small hole in it that it'll take me a week to get over but objectively i know like it's better that it ends here probably (laughs) Yeah, like this is not a show that needed to run 17 seasons no. and have so many different episodes. And whilst I would be happy to see, I mean, I sent you the, the little Washmen clip that they <laughs> made during quarantine, which is obviously like the sign that they obviously got along as a cast. <laughs> the fact that like they can, in short notice, kind of get everyone to do in character performances. Not Jeremy Irons, though, the prick. Not Jeremy Irons. <laughs> Do you think Jeremy Irons owns a smartphone? No, to, like... I, I'm, I'm fucking like, yeah, I I wouldn't expect Jeremy Irons to have jumped in on that. But yeah, to yeah. see them all uh, do that. And Phillips have some of the wildest moments. Uh, and PT, <laughs> PT in uh, Angela's costume was pretty fun. Yes, but, yeah. I'm actually the opposite to you in that I think this is my least favourite oh. of the Lindelof shows. But only in terms of the fact that Lost is such a seminal piece of my kind of like tv burgeoning youth like it was the show that got me into 
reading critical constructions of television and watching television the way that I watch it. It was very much that formative piece of media for me. And The Leftovers was my favourite pop culture thing from the last 10 years. I don't think anything the last 10 years affected me as much as The Leftovers did. Okay. And Watchmen didn't even end up being my favourite show of last year. It's a show I massively loved. I think in my end of year list, it would be number one Fleabag, number two Succession, number three Watchmen. Like, this is you, not a... You can't play the Fleabag card. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, we'll cover Fleabag. I don't At even know point. how we'd go about that. It's like, just watch it. Every moment of it is amazing. <laughs> yeah, like that, but that's the thing. Is, is like Last year, I was like... It, it was the first year in quite some time, I think since the first season of Leftovers, where the Lindelof show wasn't automatically my favourite mm. show of the year that it aired in. And that's not to disparage it. I just think... I just... I I think... I don't think this ever st- put a foot wrong, really. Like, I think there are episodes of The Leftovers and there are definitely episodes of Lost that are kind of a swing and a miss. And I think it's probably just out of the nature of it being nine and knowing it will be nine and not having plans beyond that necessarily. I think it was... It's so... It's like distilled Lindelof. Yeah, it, it's just very focused and I appreciate that about it that... I guess, yeah, a side effect of not going long is you don't overstay your welcome and you, you know, you make every step count. And I love this combination of actors. Like, obviously, Carrie Coon is phenomenal in The Leftovers and Regina King is great in The Leftovers, but she's doing more here. I think she's better here. And I, I, I like this ensemble more than I like any of the other ensembles. Like, those lost characters are iconic, obviously, but I, don't think it would be unfair to say that like the the like acting heavyweights they've brought in here uh would be pretty difficult for any show to match like yeah i i think that lindelof after this like when when this show kind of runs the gamut at the emmys later on this year like i will be rooting fully for watchmen to do a little bit of a sweep because i do think it probably should sweep some of the miniseries categories although the netflix show with caitlin diva is up against it which is absolutely fantastic as well, but I'm going to be sat there going, like, I want Regina King to win that Emmy, I want Gene Smart to win that Emmy, I want Yaya to win that Emmy, I want... Hmm. I, th- I think Jeremy Irons is the one going for lead in this one, and, like, or I would love to really? see all four of those. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess. I guess that makes sense, but, yeah. But, yeah, but that's the thing, is I, I want to see them win the directing Emmy, and all these different things. Like, this is a technical achievement and a, a wonderful achievement, across the board and i think it also means that because they're going to win all these acting awards and because everyone's kind of there's a a brown swell of people going like well carrie coon probably should have won an emmy at (laughs) some point before she did the leftovers and regina king won an emmy for every single show she was on at the same time the leftovers were airing except the leftovers that and obviously won an academy award like a year later i think lindelof is only going to increase the amount of actors he can get for future projects yeah i was gonna say does he have anything lined up like was all of his energy in the hunt uh, coming off this or or did he film the hunt first the hunt was probably filming at the same time i imagine Mm. like obviously movies have a longer gestation period and this was supposed the hunt was supposed to come out before watchmen Mm. like aired i believe before all the controversy but he he would like all of last year he was going to be putting in a lot of effort into Mm. into watchmen which wrapped in december and there's nothing I've seen announced for what he's going to do next. Mm. Obviously, he's allowed to take a break, but... 
He is, but that dude, like, he pretty much went from project to project to project, didn't he? Like, I think he's a, a big workaholic. Yeah, like, he, after Lost wrapped up, he obviously started doing movies for a couple of years, and then came back with Leftovers, which subsumed his focus for a good while there. And then last year, I, he took 2018 off. Okay. But I imagine a lot of 2018 was spent planning what Watchmen was going to look like. Exactly, yeah. Like, this, like they, they, they talked about how they did, like, the Watchmen book club and everything, and, and you know, his central conceit being rooted in that um, Tanahasi Coates article and everything. Like, I would imagine this took a lot of meticulous planning, and, you know, he was living this for a good couple of years before he made it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it's, it's paid off, I think... Dame Lindelof, I think in the same way that you're kind of an Aaron Sorkin stan, <laughs> like Lindelof is just a writer that I vibe with on like just an intrinsic level. Like even if what's not they're fair, doing your is one made... isn't problematic. He does hate dogs. I mean, my, my, he does hate dogs, and he doesn't make good movies. Yeah, true. Like he only makes good TV. I, yeah. Like at the end of the day, Aaron Sorkin made my favorite movie of the 2010s. Yeah. <laughs> all right shall we talk about so shall we then? talk about the show so for one final time we're gonna let matt cover what ozymandias up to it on europa but we have a little bit of house cleaning to do before we get to that point which is who exactly is lady true <laughs> well uh remember <laughs> ozymandias's problematic vietnamese manservant in the book well here are some of them while he's uh, recording his Robert Redford message, and uh, one of the cleaning ladies potters into his office. I love that the entire thing around that is like he just doesn't care enough about the cleaning stuff nope. to like give a shit about what she's doing. Like she guesses the password or knows the password to his computer. It's the exact same password as his computer in New York. Ramsey's which... too, yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we hear this, he's the world's smartest man. Sometimes you're like, is he though? <laughs> like I understand he's very clever, but like I feel he's nowhere near as clever as he thinks he is. Because I would hope, I would hope 2010s Ozymandias is more discerning about their computer password than 1980s Ozymandias is, because he's got two different screens with the same login. Whereas nowadays, you have to imagine it would be some <laughs> kind of number cipher that would yes. uh, spell out Ramses II or whatever. Indeed, but yes, Bian, the cleaning lady does his password, and behind his portrait of Alexander the Great is a series of sperm samples. She removes vial 2,346, which means Ossimandius has jerked off into a vial at least 2,346 times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he has never given himself to a woman, as we'll find out later. <laughs> yes, and she says, fuck you, Ozymandias. Turkey bases herself with his sperm and replaces the sample with lotion. Yeah, the fuck you was Amandius and then getting pregnant with his baby thing is certainly a choice. It's yeah. a wonderful line. It's she delivers it wonderfully. Yeah, as she's quoting Sun Tzu, but saying it all in Vietnamese, and then her one line of English is fuck you was Amandius. And uh, yeah, many years later, Lady True comes knocking at the doors of Karnak, and yeah, his whole fuck off basically i don't want to talk to fans you can't use my bathroom i'm not giving you autographs i don't care how far you've come which is all very interesting given his whole deal is 
I want my fucking credit for how amazing I am. And then when someone actually, you know, you get the sense this has happened before, <laughs> and he's just like, no, Which go seems away. insane. Yeah. The idea that people would trip all the way to the Antarctic to yeah. find this man. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's 2008. It's about a year before the events from last episode, mm-hmm. or the, the 2009 events from last episode. So he's a year away from being taken to Europa. Yes. But she, she immediately disarms him by saying... I know that you killed three million people in New York and I'm the smartest woman in the world. Yes. And he kind of like takes interest then. Like this is, this feels like the first person in 20 years who has interested him in any way enough to like have a conversation with. Yeah. And he he lets her come in and, and I like his line about as if some cowboy actor could attain the presidency because we know real world events. Reagan should have been president by now. And yeah, it's that quite amusing, like that they using both of these actors play cowboys. There's so many. I I think there's a more depth to the amount of nicknames you can give to Robert Redford than you can to Ronald <laughs> Reagan, just because Robert Redford's a better actor than Ronald Reagan. Oh yeah, <laughs> did, and did probably Ronald would be Reagan... a better president than Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Did Ronald Reagan get to star in an MCU movie? No, case closed. Exactly. The the arbiter for good quality cinema. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, she's buttering him up, and she's, you know, very, oh, what a brilliant plan. Only the smartest man in the world could come up with it. And he's showing her his little squid fall and everything, and his random algorithm that makes meteorologists unable to predict it and all of this. Uh, Amateur sleuths can't can't trace where it's going to end up next. <laughs> yeah, but then she drops this bombshell of yeah, it's truly amazing, but it's a rerun. And he is the face of, of just shock that he's been slapped with this. And it's like, you know, excuse me? And that's when yeah, she... Like for, for God knows how long, you've just been repeating the same thing you did 30 years ago yeah. you haven't changed it you're just doing variations on it to kind of maintain a status quo rather yes. than progress the world forward you thought that this would be the only thing you had to do mm. to improve the world and obviously it feels like these words stayed with him because in the next episode you have him acting incredibly despondent that, yes. like already in this one he's despondent that redford won't talk to him but by the next time he's like oh i do need to do something to to have pushed forward, but they keep on making their bombs, and (sighs) it's like, she she did have an effect on him, even if he tells her to fuck off at the end of this. Yeah, and, you know, she she drops her plan that she is going to obtain John's powers and use them to... We see, like, multiple people say this in this episode, of, like, you know, the things he should do with his powers and everything, and it is the the ongoing thing of, like, he's so frustrating because he can do anything, and he just seemingly just stands there and i actually cre- really quite like this subplot with all these geniuses in the end they're actually quite stupid because the second she obtains his powers she will gain his worldview and she will no longer want to <laughs> do all the things that she thinks he should be doing it's like none of you are comprehending that the big thing here is the way he perceives the world and it's not, you can't have, like, one without the other. The abilities come with the mentality. Uh, or, you know, I assume we've not seen the powers successfully transfer, or have we? But yeah, I, it just seems, it struck me as like, but the second you get them, you'll no longer want to do the thing you got them for. But here she is to ask for $42 billion 
hi, I'm sample 2346. Uh, and he says, I will never call you daughter. And that was when I realised, oh, it says save me daughter, not save me Dan. And that's when we helped yeah, sank can... a little bit, that Dan's only involvement in the show is, you know, I could get your owl out of his cage and mentions in the PTpedia files. He but... made a dildo. He did make a dildo, but like... A passive-aggressive dildo. I don't know if it's just because it's them giving the seal of approval to Patrick Wilson's portrayal that they don't feel they need to tinker with it, but yeah, I don't know. I would have loved to have seen some kind of greater involvement or mention of Dan. Um, yeah, I think I think it was one of those things where Lindelof says, like, they, they planned out the season and they were like, there's no way to organically have Dan be involved in the season. Mm. Well, there's just without, two. <laughs> <laughs> but again, like what what could what the closest they could have done would be maybe Dan was out of retirement and was the superhero they took down in episode three is the only way you could do about it. But that, but then but then the episode has to become about a conversation between Laurie and Dan, yeah, which isn't what the show should be about, really. Yes, that's the, the show isn't built to focus on that, and so yeah. It, it's for the better that the show doesn't, even if it is something that I would have liked to have seen. Yeah. But yeah, this this little interaction, it kind of... I don't want to say it finishes True's story, but it kind of does, because it's like, okay, she is literally your Ozymandias 2.0, your Mwahaha villain, your next generation of this character, and her entire plan is, you know, under the guise of saving the world she would quite clearly become like some monstrous entity if she pulled this off and like what it would take except to... she wouldn't well no yeah as you say, that's like, my point she yeah. she wants she wants to but she yeah. can't because yeah. she's never had a conversation with dr manhattan yeah even even ozymandias can't comprehend how he perceives time yeah and that was his undoing before and like yeah i i just like this about both of them that like they had this big plan well i guess ozzy's sort of worked but you know, all the villains in this show, they they have arrived at a similar point and none of them quite fully comprehend the the end point of their plan. Like they, they have it it's so difficult to pull off that all of your energy goes into making it happen and you've not really actually thought through enough what will happen if you succeed. And perhaps there's a subconscious thing of I probably won't succeed, so I can't look past it. But anyway, it, it sets us up for well, I, I, I do like the one final line where after she reveals that she's sampled 2346 and like how you didn't trust the cleaning lady and everything like that, mm. Ozymandias goes, she wasn't just a cleaning woman and you think he's going to say something <laughs> nice or horrific about her and she, like, she, was, a, she was a thief and yes. she stole from me and yeah. it's like, oh, so you're, you're this petty about is, all of this. I really like, like, through eight episodes, they have kind of flirted with Ozzy being fun and sort of a dark horse hero in some ways and like you know trying to give him some sympathy and this last episode really just goes no 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 no. this guy's a massive dickhead like he is the most raging narcissist you've ever come across in your life and he's so petty and pathetic in this last episode it's great yeah and as as we're about to find out everything that's happened in the preceding eight episodes is all a game made of its own construct designed to stop him from going insane yep the gamekeeper his invention he set the rules it's all to his thing and you know he he spelled out save me daughter with these bodies knowing because true said she'd sent the satellite up and in exactly five years and however long it will capture images of him or whatever and so Adrian knows exactly when the satellite will capture the picture. 
and I guess he set it up. So I, I don't know if it's like, you know, it'll take five years to get to him in the first place, but then I can get a ship to him quicker than that. I don't fucking know. But yes, he has perfectly meticulously calculated all of this so that the message is waiting at the exact point that he knew it would be and he will be rescued at the exact time he will be. And, you know, the gamekeeper tries to stop him. You know, he's been tunneling out for a year with his horseshoe <laughs> that, like... Again, I really don't understand if there's supposed to be some higher meaning to this horseshoe. No, I think the horseshoe is literally like, hey, you're going to have to give me the horseshoe at some point. We'll figure out... Like, he's writing it on the fly. Like, we'll figure out some way the horseshoe (laughs) will tie into everything by the end. And obviously he'd gone like, right, at some point you're going to arrest me, put me in prison, and I'm going to use this horseshoe to dig my way out. Yeah, because obviously one of the Phillipses slipped him the horseshoe. And it's just like, he plays it as if, aha, finally. And it's like, but this is all exactly as you wanted it to be. And, like, you know, even the game warden tries to shoot him, and once again he catches the bullet. And I do like the continued touch of his hand is bloodied when he does this. Like, he doesn't just perfectly Mm. catch it between his fingers. It is always, like, a bit of an ordeal. But he's still got it. He catches the bullet. He stabs the gamekeeper to death with the horseshoe. And he says, why did you make me wear a mask? And he says, because masks make people cruel. And how I had eight years to kill, I needed a worthy adversary to keep me sane. And he says, was I a worthy adversary? And he says, <laughs> no, but you put on a good show. Yes. And I like that this implies that Ozzy almost immediately realised he'd made a mistake coming here. Because he said, I had eight years to kill, and it's been eight years. So it's like he got there, and within days... He was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) This this is not the one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, he just went there. Like, there was no packing of bags. There was no thinking it through. John just teleported him there. And I I forgot to mention last time, I love the shot of Adrian just disappearing and John catching the little thing in his hand. It's like a very Mm. well done thing. But, yeah, and then he he (laughs) passed his his file of, of Phillips's and Crookshanks. He boards the rocket. And <laughs> please put your hands on your hips and we will preserve you so that you don't go insane or starve or whatever. And uh, she, the last big twist, he's the fucking statue that she's had in the background all this time. Yes, she they seal him in something that bronzes him, golds him up or whatever. And uh, that is what crashed on the Clark's farm that she bought their, their land for and... When when Laurie was like, you know, why have you made him old? And she says, because he is old. And it's like, oh, so he's just chilling in the background for several episodes, waiting for the right time to be defrosted. Yeah, I, I even think in the first episode that you see the statue, Laurie kind of turns around and goes like, is that Ozymandias? Or, or one of them goes, is that Ozymandias? And True's answer is, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, without realising that she's literally putting out the thing like no that is literally him he's just encased in gold i've not defrosted him yet because it's yeah. funny to me to have a big statue yeah i really like true saying to little bian she's about to break it to her that you're my mother but little bian knows and she's like i have to tell you because he'll say something and then the first thing he says is you cloned your mother <laughs> it's just like yeah good perfect you all know yeah, each he, other he is that intelligent and all the rest but i do want to give just because it's there exit to the series that Tom Neeson and Sarah Vickers have been great as Mr. Phillips and Mr. Crookshanks. It's it's such a kind of memorably weird role. Neither of them are asked to do an awful lot. Mm. 
with what the characters are, but you can tell they're having a hell of a lot of fun, especially when Tommy Sun was the lead on Sleepy Hollow <laughs> for several years before this. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's just, you can tell this is something that you just kind of... I, someone th- comes... I would imagine the three of them had an awful lot of fun on set all day doing their yeah. weird little plays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. It's this weird little corner of the show that never truly intersects with the main plot up until this final episode, but it's the most fun and kind of frivolous portion of the show. Yes. And and, and I and I, I, I just want to give a hack tip to them, even if they're not given the emotional material that so much of the rest of the cast are kind of given and asked to play. No, but I mean, not many shows have better actors in their like eighth, ninth, tenth spot on the call sheet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they nailed it. So, Yeah, I do also like the... Truth is feels touched because she asks, "Did you spell those words out of bodies?" And the fact that he went through the additional effort to spell out the entirety of the word "daughter," he didn't write "true" or anything like that. He spells out "daughter," which is so extra when you think how many extra letters, how many more Crookshanks and Phillips he had to kill to do it. Yeah, yeah. And she and she's touched that he murdered this many people. She doesn't know that they're all clones and ostensibly like doesn't matter. Not- doesn't matter. I think he would have done it either way. <laughs> he didn't put a comma though after save me so he can't be that smart he, d- he didn't want to waste too many bodies no, okay. <laughs> but yeah we get the return of the newspaper man Yes. after this as they show up in the centre of Tulsa to set up whatever it is that Lady True has been planning all season long she she takes the newspapers away and asks them to put inside the time capsule assumedly that True is going to be using this as like this is the day that history changed I want to preserve the newspapers from this time period documenting my Uh, life (laughs) yeah and then you get Robert Wisdom kind of turning to turning to Ozymandias and going oh you look just like Adrian Veidt and (laughs) saying like ah yes of course I do and the the backhanded compliment of going like oh you you look so much like him you could do birthday parties and shit he's like not exactly Uh, but you could do birthday parties and shit yeah Uh, and, and Ozzy yeah. being like outraged at the papers, he's like, he, "Good God, Redford's still president." He's like, "Yeah, tell me about it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice seeing Ozymandias inter- interact with Other regular people. People. <laughs> yeah, yeah. people who don't understand his bullshit. Yeah, I also like that he has to listen to this person go like, "Oh, he's been missing for ten years. No one gives a shit where he went." Yeah, like, I was expecting a big anymore. reaction to that, but he kind of just lets it all wash over him. I also like his little uh, old person, like, like his his more tasteful uh, garments that she prepared for him. Yeah, which include the 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 Lady True, the True Company logo, and his little eye elephant. logo as well. Yes, impressive that we have uh, two separate factions with an eye logo, and they uh, you know make it clear they're not connected. <laughs> yeah, uh, but speaking of this other faction, as the Millennium Clock descends upon the centre of Tulsa, we cut to. The, the mall where the 7th Cavalry have set up and arriving there to witness what is about to happen is all the head higher-ups of, of Cyclops, uh, including Joseph Keane Sr., the person who put into place the Keane laws back in the 1970s that banned superheroes from interacting and the father of everyone's favourite monologuing supervillain, Joe Keane. <laughs> and we Good. see that we're, we're, we're setting up for some big racist party essentially yeah he is as good as ever here is uh is keen and 
yeah, Laurie, Spotting, Keen Senior, and, you know, Mirror Mask. You know, we talked about how... Mirror Mask. <sighs> Looking Glass. She'd be proud of me. <laughs> yeah, Looking Glass hiding in plain sight using that stolen 7K elf uh, mask. And, you know, she's like, fucking shoot him. And he's like, and then what? Like, because, I mean, yeah, you could probably shoot that dude, but then you all die. And they win. Yeah, and this big racist monologue as he's like slowly undressing and no one's batting an eyelid at this so i assume he's briefed them on what he's going to do <laughs> um and the fucking touch of the little dr manhattan briefs down to the ridiculous like high v on the front and then normal on the back is is chef kiss good uh and yeah they, they teleport in manhattan you know we we hear the events of episode eight happening over the walkie-talkie they teleport him in Laurie's gasp when he appears in front of her is excellent and they have the tiniest of little moments but I'm glad they have something and I do feel that the Angela Cal Laurie I think that relationship could have been pulled out even further and that that's maybe money left on the table but I also understand that you know it's not really practical for them to have a 10 minute scene together in the middle of this like high stakes finale but you know the gasp is big yeah, I I love this monologue that he gives. Like it's intercut with Angela interrogating the the last member of the Seventh Cavalry that teleported John away, mm-hmm. and her kind of busting into the compound because she's not all that far away really. Mm-hmm. It seems like Tulsa's very small in retrospect. Wow, probably bigger uh, than most but, UK cities, but small for America. Yes. <laughs> yes, but we get some fantastic quotes in this speech like the the one that really sticks out to me is joe keen as he's like taking off his shirt going like first he took our guns and then he made us say sorry like the second <laughs> one is the thing that really rankles it's not yeah. like an infringement on perceived rights or anything like that it's the fact that they're a bunch of petulant children who don't want to say sorry for something that they don't think they caused and they, have, and they don't want to have deference to anyone else and yeah for a show which is so heavily steeped in the fantastical and alt-universe tale, they have couched all of the kind of the racial epithets in real-world rhetoric. Yes. Which makes it feel so much more on the nose and perceptive. Yeah. Than yeah, it, otherwise have been. Yeah, it's that whole thing of like... I, I think it, it all goes back to his speech about how we're not racist, we just... It's just hard to be a white man right now. And it, that is very much the incredibly dumb attitude of a lot of these people of like refusing to acknowledge that there was a problem or there is still a problem and like just hand waving it and being like oh that was all so long ago and like there's there's nothing to apologize for i didn't do anything my ancestors have nothing to apologize for blah 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 and yeah, the... yeah i had 100 rights yesterday and you had 25 now you've got 50 and i've still got 100 that's not fair <laughs> exactly <yeah. laughs> kind of, like that kind of idea like you've doubled your position in society and i've not and that's not fair whatsoever yeah my not, massive not lead is is not <laughs> as massive as it was yesterday yeah all really good stuff we get the background for how exactly did the Seventh Cavalry and Joe Keane figure out that Doctor Manhattan was in Tulsa? And yes. we get the final, the final piece of the puzzle from the White Knight when they talk about the guy who got teleported away, and he ends up in Gila Flats, New Mexico. And that's impossible. How did this man end up in New Mexico? I spoke to him thirty minutes ago. There's only one person in the world powerful enough to teleport someone to to Gila Flats, New Mexico, and lo and behold, he was born in Gila Flats, New Mexico. Yes. 
So they, they piece it together and start coming up with this. Like, it's a convoluted plan because it involves Judd having to befriend this family. Yeah. Like, I, the, the, there's several years of prep work there. It does. I mean, I don't know. Well, you get the sense they were already friends before the White Knight. This strengthened their bond. She was just a, an officer in the Tulsa PD. Like, wasn't anyone that he would have to take to like pay attention to. Yeah. And they, they forced this bond. And, like, it's one interesting wrinkle the show never kind of delves into is they seem to have chemistry. Yeah. In that first episode. Yeah, it does call into attention. Does he feel in any way conflicted about this? Has he genuinely befriended her? Would he be able to go through with it? You know, is he even fully privy to everything? Is he just doing his very small part? I I don't know. It's wild that, you know, they put it together like that. And, you know, they've been melting down all these old watch batteries, these lithium batteries that Dr. Manhattan charged with, like, forever battery, I guess. For years years previously and people stopped using because they were scared that he was spreading cancer and they used that to build a big cage to keep him in um, and, and destroy his perception of time yeah and, and he starts Keen quoting talk- issue four it's, it's really good yes yes <laughs> and and keen mentions that she he, like he couldn't resist inviting Lloyd blake after judge got murdered mm. just so to have this fight rub it in the face and speaking of rubbing things in people's faces his his brilliant line of Laurie turns to him and goes like shouldn't you be naked right now while you're wearing that pair of panties and his response is I'm about to become the most powerful man alive waving my dick in people's faces is just overkill which is (laughs) wonderful and again I love the performance of James Walk he is fantastic in this show and it's so sad that like they give him this final monologue to deliver but We know the fact that Lady True is doing something off in the centre of the centre of town that potentially his time in this world is not. <laughs> yeah, like, longer. and you know, Angela rocking up and being like, "Don't do this." True knows what's happening. There's no, you know, and adding in this thing that I don't know if we're supposed to have known, but you know, you're using her power supply. Like it's because she let you take it and all of this sort of stuff. And you know, he goes down venomous and horrible he says this thing about you know putting you down like the black bitch you are and stuff like that and it's like oh don't forget as funny as this guy is sometimes he is a fucking cunt yeah and yeah he ends up a big puddle of joe (laughs) (laughs) the the reveal of that is fantastic because as they turn the machine on it obviously doesn't do what they thought it was going to do he's inside the the, the, oh, I can't even remember they call it. I want to call it a hyperbolic time chamber, but that's from Dragon Ball Z. They just call it a pod, I think. Yeah, he so he he steps inside this pod, and they turn it on, thinking it's going to do something, but instead they all get teleported to the center of Tulsa, mm-hmm. right next to the Doctor Manhattan phone. Yes, where Lady True has set up and prepared for them to arrive to be right underneath the Millennium Clock, and she starts to she she kind of like. Is surprised to see Angela there because Angela's not supposed to be witness to what she's about to do to Doctor Manhattan mm. before quickly turning her focus on onto Cyclops. Like they get the giant magnets out and kind of whisk all the guns away from them, which is a nice, fun little moment. Yeah. Again, like they took away our guns. There's a little bit of symmetry there towards yes. that. And yeah. then she goes, kind of does a head check on like who's there, and then goes, oh. I see Joe Keane's not here. Where's he? Oh, was he inside <laughs> this thing? I'm going to open up this giant thing. And then... Yes, a huge puddle of uh, Joe Guts come out. Yes. 
quick. I, I love the bit of Laurie it kind of stamping on. Her stamping on. <laughs> like, we don't know what it is. It's some kind of viscera. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a wonderful little moment. It's the kind of end you probably should get for Joaquin, even yeah. if he was a great character. Yeah, and True says about uh, how, like, removing all this atomic energy without filtering it first is, is dangerous or whatever. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> and off he goes, and it, she fulfills her promise to Will, you know, that he came to her and was like, I need your help to kill all the 7K. And in exchange, he gave her Cal. And uh, that is what. Angela won't forgive him for that he was talking about previously and you know she to her credit she she ends them she kills them all like Judd's uh, widow is like just fucking kill us if you're going to and she's like okay oh it's like is that what you're gonna do she's like oh absolutely I'm gonna kill you and then uh, turns her magical particle beam on them and just fucking disintegrates them all <laughs> great great stuff a, a very fitting end to Cyclops and that kind of yeah. storyline like just kill them all. It yeah. doesn't matter. Like she, she obviously has contempt for them. They're not part of her world order that's going to exist after this. Yeah, it's not um, like she's. I mean, she has massive evil vibes, but I don't think she would like throw her lot in with racists, especially if she's Vietnamese. She is. She is the same kind of chaotic good that Ozymandias is. Like everything is done. I'm going to prioritize the the lives of the many over the lives of the few. It just so happens in both their cases that lives of the few involves characters that we care about or three million New Yorkers and yes. and like these, you know, these... one, one level of villain exterminating the level of villain that like we desperately want to see stamped out. Like you know, the comic book villain is more tolerable than the like very painfully true of life racist like. KKK yes, offshoot yes. and everything. Yeah. I do love the little touch of, like, we finally get the reunion of Adrian and Laurie, and Adrian picking Laurie up from her chair that she's been chained to, and getting to pronounce her surname perfectly. I know! Uh, just like he does in the comic book. I was it's, I was impressed. Uh, yeah, she's like, Adrian, am I dead? <laughs> As he picks her up off the floor, and you know, great that we acknowledge this relationship, even if those characters weren't demonstrated to be overwhelmingly close or to have much of a relationship at all in the comic, it's just still, oh, hey, you're one of, like, the big people from my life, um, whether we had a personal relationship or not. Like, you shaped a huge part of my life. And, uh, yeah, great stuff. And then, you know, the puddle leaks under the the big lithium cage. And without thinking about it, really, John slash Cal touches it. And I was like, is Angela going to eat some of Joe's, like, viscera and gain his powers? Because the whole thing had been planted in my head of, like, the egg and consuming and all of this. And it will go there. But I was expecting it to happen, like, before she ended up here. And I was like, oh, she's moved away from the eggs. Hmm. How will she use his powers to save him? And then it became very clear that is not his plan at all as he teleports Ozzy, Laurie, and Looking Glass to Karnak. And John, she's like, why didn't you send me? And he said, I didn't want to die alone. And his goodbye is so beautiful, saying, like, he's a, you know, where are you? I am in every moment we spent together. And it's yeah, like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in every moment we were together all at once. Yeah. And it's uh, like, you know, we've seen how fu- infuriating he can be, but this is how, like, beautiful, like, this being can be and what a unique spirit he will be and everything yeah like he he tells her because i don't want to die alone is the the main reason why he didn't send her away it's not yeah 
for any particular reason and this is the kind of the main thesis that I have about Lindelof shows and why I do really like them and why maybe this one doesn't hang together quite as well in my mind like it, not that it doesn't hang together quite as well but it, it doesn't hit me as emotionally as some of the others do and it's because the love story is backgrounded very much into these final two episodes but yeah. at the end of the day it is a love story between these two characters it is a love story between Cal and Angela whereas in The Leftovers and in Lost there's these love stories that take place over seasons and seasons of time and we get to know Kevin and we get to know Nora incredibly well and on Lost you can you can take your pick of like which character you're gonna choose as your OTP on that show I think Desmond and Penny were the ones that I latched on to whereas in this show that he is a massive softie is Lindelof but it's the show where love the, the love story of it all doesn't reveal itself until yeah, today that we just... that we didn't realize it, but the entire events of this show have been John's love story with Angela, and just you know, going about his business on Europa, and then looking into the future and seeing Angela, and like going to her and knowing he will die, but being so infatuated with her, and potentially you know she is the one true love over Laurie and over um, Janie. And yeah, it's it's just beautifully done by um, by Yaya here and 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 Regina King as well. Yeah, just this another pain. You know, it looks so painful when he got teleported away, and it looks so painful when he gets killed. And I like that the last vestiges of the of the machine, or maybe he does it himself with like the last of his power. He looks like Cal again for that last moment, mm. and then he's gone, and it's. It's heartbreaking, and like yeah. to think that as little as three years ago, I thought you know Doctor Manhattan's a dick. Like I don't give a <laughs> shit about Doctor Manhattan, and now here we are, and yeah, a wonderful performance by yeah. him throughout. <laughs> yeah, like again, I went to have a look at one of those websites that does Emmy prognostications last night after we had our episode to see where Yaya was on the list, and he wasn't even listed as someone in the running. And I'm like, Boom. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be pissed if he's not in that shortlist. I don't know whether or not you put him as lead or as supporting, but if he's not in that five mm. batch, then that's that's a disservice to how good this performance is. Yeah, I love the stuff that's happening in Karnak at the same time as this though. <laughs> Looking glass get... trying to give him shit for what he did, and he's just like, just piss off <laughs> yeah like i don't care about you the only person in this room who i have any time for is is laurie them having their little kind of back and forth about what's going on his incredulous you're in the fbi to her <laughs> is is fantastic and does she say yeah anti-vigilante task force or something yeah. yes yeah and him labeling her a raging narcissist without limits and the show thankfully gets there a second after everyone is sitting there thinking, um, pots and kettles, and he says in Latin, takes one to no one. And yeah, I mean, I'm glad he is self aware in that way, but it makes sense that, like, the best way to stop Ozymandias 2.0 is with Ozymandias Original, you know? And, uh, yeah, they rain down the squids that I guess he normally unthaws them, and, uh, this time he doesn't, so they are frozen and, like, bullets raining from the fucking sky. Yes, and you get this fantastic moment, like, they have enough time as this machine kind of winds up to, to do this final attack, and... Lady True's kind of stood there doing the Jesus pose that we know John to do, and <laughs> as they're doing this, a frozen squid falls through her hand, and she kind of stares at it. And she has and... her stigmata. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. it's great. Like, I mean, there's there's a few other things happening at the same time. Like the Tulsa PD show up, and 
and Bianne tells Angela to get her friends to go away, mm-hmm. and Laurie calls the Manhattan phone to give them heads up. But yeah, like the moment that squid falls through True's hand is it's kind of this is the end. She's not going to survive this. Yeah. And over the course of the next couple of minutes, we get just carnage as <laughs> the Millennium Clock is completely destroyed. We see people falling down as they're just hit by these massive pieces of ice that are falling from the sky. It's kind of a wonder that the only named character who dies during this is Lady True. Yeah, because Bian gets in the booth and Angela runs with the... Like, I thought Bian getting in the booth would be a loose end that it'd be like, ah, oh, but remember, Bian is alive. And then they show her still alive. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, and Angela runs to the theatre using the... Uh, use, like, taking cover as she goes and, you know, she has her moment with Will and the children are asleep on the set of uh, Black Oklahoma. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he says, you can't heal under a mask, Angela. And talking about John and how this was all his idea and he said to do all of this and and you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs and that's when I think it occurs to her that well, I don't, it still doesn't quite hit. Yeah, her, she but... she she's just like it'll make sense when it has to make sense and we yeah. we we're a few minutes away from that but this this conversation here is kind of what the entire season's been about. Mm. As we as I keep on mentioning it's all about generational trauma and Throughout this scene, you have Will saying, "Like you, you rate more my my nostalgia pills. You know, now you know everything, my origin story, and how he realized that what he felt when he put the mask on wasn't anger; it was mm. fear and hurt. And he was lashing out. He wasn't angry. He was trying to find a way to heal himself. And yeah. that line that you mentioned, like you can't heal under a mask, Angela, but." That sec- the second part of that quote is probably the more important bit, like, wounds need air, we need to talk about these things, we need to acknowledge them and find our way past them, and it's this beautiful sentiment and all of it's intercut with images from the very first scene of the first episode with yeah. Will as the little five-year-old watching the watching the Bass Reeves yeah. silent movie, and kind of talking about, like, that's his image of what a hero is yeah, exactly. And like saying, I sat in this very spot a hundred years ago almost, and, you know, I watched my mother playing the piano over there and everything. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very powerful. And like, you know, this guy lived that life through to its terminus, and he was left with no family and just a lot of like contemplation. So, uh, you know, I think he still is a bit dickish. But I still think, you know, he has a good cautionary tale for Angela and someone to listen to. And she invites him to the house because, you know, her husband is gone. Her children's father is gone. So it's like, you know, here's someone and, yeah, invites him to the house. It's not a branch. It's a sign that this rift that happened with your wife and child running away, let's begin to heal this. Let's begin to have that constructive conversation like this isn't going to be easy but this is Mm. what we need to do to make sure that like this isn't going to be completely correct but we can do something to make it better at the end of the day and and before we get to the kind of the final denouement scene with with fight and everyone up in Karnak the the montage of them walking through Angela's bakery as they get the car and go home (laughs) and and Topher seeing the sister night outfit yeah. And and you get the like even though they've managed to overcome this one piece of trauma, the idea that Topher seeing that his adopted mother is still a cop and is someone who's still putting herself at danger hmm. is just a sign that like this trauma is 
cyclical and it's going to continue and mm. this this is like maybe this isn't the kind of big fuck up moment that Will had with his son watching him put on makeup night after night but it's still that can I trust my adopted mother that she's been hiding from me that she's been putting herself in danger especially how viscerally he reacts in early episodes to how yeah. cops cops die like that's that's his reaction to the news that Judd dies is police officers die that's that's yeah. what happens to them I could certainly see it going that way but I I feel Angela ends this I could see regardless of what happens with what we're going to talk about in a second I could see her hanging up her badge following the events of this and who even knows if the costumed police thing would continue when the 7k are ostensibly wiped out and the guy that pushed through the masked cop thing is gone and maybe certain things are going to be revealed via ptpedia and and whatever else although they say they're going to expunge all of his wordy memos (laughs) you know so like maybe this status quo as we know it is going away and i also read it as almost like or like oh wow your sister knight and maybe they're not going that way maybe they're going for like he is shocked in a bad way uh i also like the touch that seemingly only he sees it that the girls kind of are just sleepily put into the car and it, it sort of harkens back to when she treated them differently than she did him and she just kind of looks at him when he sees it and it's sort of like that's me and like you know letting him see it in a way but yeah no that's that's a fair point that that could fuck him up. But yeah, so the the final kind of fun cap of the episode before we get to the, 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 the ostensible cliffhanger, yes. if you will, is Vite leading them into his, what would you call it? Like his warehouse or a hanger. a hanger. He's got a little hanger and inside he's got a fixed up Archie and Laurie's, ve- Laurie's very excited to get to see Archie, leaving questions of how the fuck did they get out of Karnak back in the original story if they didn't take Archie. <laughs> Unless like bought Archie back or so I don't know, yeah. but the, uh, Laurie like they're about to get to Archie and then Laurie goes, oh yeah, you're under arrest. <laughs> and he's <laughs> like, sorry, what? And he's like, you tried to k- you killed three million people, Adrian. You're under arrest, you idiot. And he's yeah. like, what? You're going to arrest the president too? And she's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. She's like, she's done giving a fuck. Like, yeah. I'm not going to give you people the time of day anymore. You say you're doing this for the better good. People keep like he he threatens that the world will end if they arrest him and expose this. And her response is, people keep saying that, but it never seems to happen. Yes. Like, like you're. A, it's almost this incredibly positive outlook where it's like you keep assuming the worst of people, yeah. and maybe we need to take a chance chance to. Well, yeah, like, and, like, you think about how, like, Watchmen is, it's an alternate reality, but, like, it's based around a point that really happened, and, like, you know, the world potentially was on the brink of nuclear Armageddon, and it didn't happen in real life, so, yeah, and I also like that it kind of restores her to Laurie Classic, almost, where she got hit with a few roadblocks that, like, she wasn't able to overcome or something she didn't see coming, and she got kind of not neutered, but, you know, put into a sort of different position. And now she's back in that position of, right, I am playfully in charge and, like, going to get my way, so uh, let's say this. And uh, when he's having his little protest, Looking Glass hits him in the back with a wrench and says, that guy talks too much. <laughs> yeah, like, take the man taken down by this essential, like, a cog in the machine kind of thing. Like, yeah. he's not paying attention to the, the guy that he doesn't give a shit about. Yeah. And I really like the idea that, I mean, who the fuck knows what happens after this, but, like, 
Blake taking Looking Glass under her wing and then forming their own little, you know, maybe him getting a spot on the anti-vigilante task force or something would be cute. But yeah, them having this bond to the end where, like, you know, she's antagonised him throughout by, like, getting his name wrong on purpose and stuff. But there is seemingly this sort of mutual respect by the end of it. Yeah, and I do love the final line of this scene is... Wade, after having just hit Ozzy around the head, going, that guy talks too much, and Laurie's response being, he surely fucking does, because... <laughs> when She's been hearing Jean... his monologues for, like, however many decades. Yeah, but when you can get Gene Smart to do one final swear, you're going to give her the opportunity to do that, and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. But yeah, and we have to talk about this final scene of the show, yes. with sure. Angela going home. She remembers he was making waffles. <laughs> and, and he floated the eggs around and he goes to clean them up. But she does have that one final conversation with Will where Will mentions... Ugh, what a dick. <laughs> Considering Will, what he could do, he could have done more. <laughs> yeah, like, but, that, but that's that thing where it's like, that's what puts the notion into her head. Like, he did do something more. Yeah. It wasn't something that saved his life, but it was something that potentially, or, well... We can't say it will or won't, because maybe he didn't do what Andrew assumes he's going to do. The The idea is seeded that John put his and like his powers into the one egg that Angela finds that didn't break when she smashed the eggs out of the air as an ability for Angela to take on the powers of Dr. Manhattan. Yes, and she... She doesn't finish making the waffles, she just eats that egg raw, uh, standing out on the... I could do it. <laughs> What's that? I couldn't do that. Uh, yeah, I've, I've eaten a raw egg. It's it's a thing. Um, you know, you push past it mentally. Um, yeah, she goes to stand on the edge of the pool, hearkening back to when he said, I need you to see I can do this. And she eats the egg, and we get the shot of her foot... As she takes the step towards the water, and there is seemingly a like ripple effect on the water, as we cut to black. And I swear her foot is like pa- powdery blue, but maybe that's just Regina King's foot. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this is getting into Inception territory. It's like, oh, I saw the I saw the spinning top wobble. That means it's going to fall over. Like... She has a fucking blue ass foot, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's no slight wobble in a spinning top. But uh, I love the fact that this is scored to a cover of I Am The Walrus. Uh, I think it would be insane if they managed to shell out the money to get the actual Beatles recording, but Beatles songs cost far too fucking much money to put onto your TV show. It was kind of funny to Yellow Submarine, but who could afford it? (laughs) But yeah, if they get this cover of I Am The Walrus and the show cuts to black just as the lyrics I Am The Eggman appear, and it is beautiful and maybe not my favourite musical moment of the season, that is still the Reznor and Ross cover to Life on Mars that ends episode 7 but like just a song that is so utterly insane (laughs) (laughs) in its lyrical content like the quintessential Ringo song to end your season with the, sh- the shout of I'm I'm the Eggman is is beautiful I know you told me to keep watching the eggs earlier on (laughs) I did I did Uh, some of my hints were better than others yes some of them (laughs) <laughs> we're just outright saying things and we have one final ptpedia his superior is basically saying look this guy's been fired he's missing there is a high risk of vigilantism there probably always was you had to fucking connect the dots for me when they say they found canola oil in his room or whatever he is the lube man 
but ran well, away. It would it would appear he is the loot man. The show never puts it together, but if if you've been paying attention, that is the connected dots there. And now for my half hour thesis on loot man, <laughs> so we can pad this episode out. Of course, to the proper length. Yes, they confirm Laurie's alive and is being debriefed. He doesn't know the extent of it. There is some gossip about the president that they are all being ordered to ignore. He is basically coming down hard on PT's like overly rambly memos and like this isn't why I expect of FBI agents. Please keep it factual and succinct. There is a mention of the Nine Inch Nails record that he took personal pleasure in smashing. Fun and yeah, until you fed me that that they were trying to feed me, I was like, yeah, it kind of sucks that PT kind of just vanishes, doesn't it? But yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, fun. He's out there lubricating himself and stopping crime. I'm telling you, it's him, it's Laurie, it's Looking Glass, it's Dr. Manhattan because women can be doctors too. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that your hypothetical cast for season two? <laughs> I don't know. I I think in a perfect world you would do an anthology story where you go to another town, but like everything ended up being so intricately connected to the plot of Watchmen and the prehistory of Watchmen in a way that I didn't expect until it actually happened, that maybe that isn't something you could do anymore. Because what are you going to do? Come up with some other contrivance about another Minuteman that tied into the events of Watchmen and is in another town somewhere. But I mean, that, that's the thing. is like Whilst it would be nice to see the Watchmen universe expanded upon, I'm not sure... Like Obviously, giving an Asian-American or an Asian writer the ability to write the story of Vietnam, what's going on with Vietnam, is inherently an interesting idea that you could yeah. tell, attempt to do. Tell that story of that 51st state and growing up under Manhattanism and everything. Yeah, but like, what is the connection to the original Watchmen text? Like, We're getting into the point where it's yeah. like, you're just... This show had such a beautifully constructed connection to the original comic book and it yeah. feels like they've kind of exhausted an awful lot of the the connective tissue and i'm sure a, a talented writer in the vein of a damon lindelof could come up with something just as good but yeah. lindelof has said he's tapped out this is his one season he's not going to do any more hmm. warner brothers are free to do with this whatever the fuck they want yeah. they have in, like hinted that this is a one and done and they're not going to do anything more but obviously money talks <laughs> uh, this show did do well and if it wins Emmys they might feel the way to renew it like we already had shows like Big Little Lies and stuff like that be renewed when they really shouldn't have been um, <laughs> I feel a lot of TV shows are renewed when they shouldn't have been and then some are cancelled when they shouldn't have been yeah it, we, we people there's, there's a weird politics still the way the TV is made and yes. the fact that something like this that is so perfectly a one and done season of television that doesn't need anything else to come after it is Well maybe it's... they can maybe they can make a series that isn't so politically charged, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I like that we've both kind of dismissed the idea of just getting this band back together and like getting Regina King back and Gene Smart back and everything like that. Yeah, I just don't know where you go from it. And I think the big lesson we learned from episode one is while you may want more Watchmen and to just get lost in that world, the more you try and expand it, I think it's actually you are losing the core essence of what made it special. Like Doomsday Clock attempts to be like, let's take these characters and bring them into our sandbox and like, let's try and flesh out the Watchmen world and like, what is the rest of the world like? What are all the implications? But I think at the end of the day, it's just such an intricate story about these specific characters. And I think... You know, I love Minutemen. I think that that works because it's a predecessor and it doesn't like necessarily 
metal with Watchmen itself. It's just kind of some stuff around the edges. And I think this is best case scenario for attempting to pick up the pieces from after Watchmen. Uh, and I think it is, I think it is best served as a one and done because the more you try and string this out, the more you, the further you stray away from what made Watchmen good in the first place. And they hats off to them they they crafted their own one of those you know <laughs> like they, yeah. they they came up with their own intricate web and it and it tied into the book in ways i didn't expect like i i came into this thinking like well for a long time they were like don't expect dr manhattan to show up but then they gave him away in the trailer and it's like it seemed like this show was gonna be like it's going to be evocative of watchmen and it's going to do a couple of cute winks and nods i didn't expect it to tie together so incredibly neatly as it does and have so many references and have such a in you know deal so heavily with the book itself and everything mm, yeah. and I, I guess that's what they wanted you to think going in because if they tell you right we're going to have like 600 ties to the book that that sort of ruins the surprise I, 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 yeah i think but it's also one of the impressive things that we have both watched this with people who are not intimately aware with the original source text and neither of them seem to have struggled like there are a couple of things that feel like in the moment they feel like confusing and mm. inundating them with information but the show manages to dole out the information that you need to have from the original book yeah. without the show becoming confusing and has managed to craft a narrative in and of itself that works yeah. which is yeah massively... like, like me stopping to contextualize and explain was almost to the detriment of the viewing experience because almost every single time within a minute or within 10 minutes they'd explained what I'd explained and they probably, and they did it in a way that was more effective than, than me just saying what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But speaking of the characters and the cast, so, so yeah, so let's, let's do a quick power ranking of kind of the, the big acts in the show, obviously Regina King, Don Johnson, Gene Smart, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Tim Blake Nelson, Hong Chow, Louis Gossett Jr., Jeremy Irons. I think we should, throw James Walk in there. It feels like he should have been a regular on the show and we'll combine Tommy <laughs> and Sarah Vickers into into one in, They're into my Angel they're Walk. my like honourable mention number ten. You know, <laughs> like they they just don't have the meat everyone else has. Like they don't have as much to play with, but you know, the show wouldn't be the same without them. So they're my like gentleman's number ten. <laughs> yeah. I like Don Johnson at nine, like if he was around more, he'd probably be a lot higher. Like, he makes quite an impact very quickly, but, like, when other people have got more to do, like, they're probably gonna, you know, do more with it. James... It's probably a similar role to what he had in Knives Out, where yeah. he isn't in your top five or six most memorable characters in that movie, but yeah. removing him, there is something that he does bring to the table that is inherently good and interesting. Yeah. I would go James Walt next because, you know, he had some great scenes, but, you know, more... <laughs> None of these are detriments. Like, that's, I, I think a lot of that is, like, speaking to how good this cast is, that these people are this far down the list. And it's not because they're bad, it's because there's just so many good people in the show. Yeah, he got some good villain monologues. Uh, Louis Gossett Jr., I put just above him. It, it's, it's, it's not that flashy role, and no. the, the main thing that is memorable like uh, like the episode that is ostensibly about hooded justice is yeah. so much on the shoulders of Giovanna Depo and yeah. Regina King and the cr the creative team behind the episode yeah. like he is mostly sidelined for that one it's it's a good performance and the character is fantastic and fantastically structured and yeah. having this character be a black bisexual who is the first superhero of this universe mm. but 
In not, terms, not much mention uh, by old man Will about his bisexuality, but I guess how does that come up in everyday conversation? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where like he's probably the least well served of the people who get a lot to do throughout the show. Yeah, or like you know you're, he's set up to be antagonistic towards someone who we are always going to love uh, right off the bat, and like he's set up to like almost be annoying, and then they like retroactively make him a nicer, more sympathetic character, but then, like, you know, his final line is sort of a, like, little snipe at Dr. Manhattan. It's like, hey! Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy Irons, I would put next. Like, I Ooh. think he was having the time of his life. And I, I, could, I could go either way with him and Hong Chao here. Um, the two villains, you know, the father-daughter combo. His scenes are really fun. But he is removed from the cast. Yeah. For an awful lot of the season. Yeah, and his wandering accent did bother me a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, he's having the time of his goddamn life. And, again, that that Jeremy Irons is is down here speaks volumes to the the top people. Uh, I would put Hang Chow above him, but I could be talked into flipping them. I think her, her performance is true, is incredible. Like, such a idiosyncratic, weird person. (laughs) But charismatic and compelling and everything and then you know she's metering out plot details and she's getting to do the big mwahaha and she's put got her little special outfit and yeah she's just great she's a great villain and uh, her hat is fantastic as her, mentioned it is episode. a nice hat yeah <laughs> tim blake nelson i would put next but i i just really dug this wade tillman performance like he's all in i feel he doesn't know how to not be all in on a character but i think he kind of served his purpose after his, like, focus episode. But I kind of wish there was a little bit more of him in the back half. But, but there's no room. Like, you know, he's outgunned at that point. Like he, Yeah, uh, and he he gets to have the kind of cathartic moment of yes. knocking the guy who gave him his trauma in the back of the head as his final moment. Like, that is a yeah. very nice denouement to the character, but he does spend yeah. three episodes of the show on the sidelines. Yeah, it's just, like, going into it, he seemed... He was one of the ones where you're like, who the fuck is that in the trailers? And he has such an interesting first episode, and then he gets his great focus episode, and it's like, yeah, this guy's fucking great. It's just, yeah, he kind of melts into the background a bit. This top three is tough, because yeah. these top three are all fantastic. <laughs> right, Regina is great from the jump. Ooh, you're no, 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 no. I'm talking them all through. Regina is great from the jump. Like, all the way through, she is fucking great. From scene one, she is great. Her final like, she- scene, A Academy Award winner, Regina King, she needs to win the Emmy for lead actress yeah. in a I, miniseries this I, year. I think she's number one purely because she's flexing throughout the entire goddamn thing. Like, she is always bringing it. Even when it's like, you get one scene in an episode that's about Laurie, or two scenes, whatever. She's still great in those. I, th- yeah, I think undisputably she is the number one. Yeah, yeah. She's number one on the call sheet, and this is her show. And Regina King is someone who has deserved respect ever since, like Jerry Maguire. Like, <laughs> like you, you could put, make an argument that she should have been nominated for an Oscar in 1997. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, when I wrote this, I put Yaya at number two and Gene Smart at number three. But then, like, Yaya's best scenes are all backloaded. But his scenes are so fucking good. Like, he is so good as Manhattan, and that is such a, an ask, an act, like a big request to make of an actor to be like, right, we've cast you as someone else. Now we need you to get into the headspace of one of the most important fictional characters ever. You will be a big naked blue man. We will not let your face be seen for a huge chunk of it. 
you have to craft a voice, you have to mimic some man- uh, mannerisms, you have to shrug off Billy Crudup. So from that perspective, it's incredible. Like, his episode 8 is, like, such a showcase of how good he can be. But then I remember how fucking good Jean Smart is in her big episode, episode 3, and how she gets all these great moments throughout, and how just so fun she is, as well as being a great actress. I, and, I, and are you coming from the point of view where you've just seen two seasons of Legion in which <laughs> she's they, very much, they very much underuse her? And this is... Noah Hawley, who kind of brings Gene Smart back to the forefront with a fantastic performance in Fargo season two. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I could go either way. Like, there's arguments for both. I think I think you could punish him for like waiting so long to. It's not that Cal was a bad character up until then. Like, you know, it's still. But he is he is the kind of underserved husband character that's normally reserved for the yeah. white character in the kind of prestige drama. However, my rebuttal is <laughs> he has a very nice penis. He does have an incredibly nice penis. That's in that true. in that one scene, in the one kind of very clear shot in this episode where it's completely blue, it's like Jesus Christ. Yeah, but then Gene Smart's holding his penis, uh, a replica of it, designed by Dan, and oh, she you're, has throwing, a... you're throwing the dildo. Yeah, paradox. And she bangs Petey, and she's got her portrait, her pop art of of her own face blocked out, and and she's got the pet owl, and she's just fucking with everyone and calling Looking Glass Mirror Guy, and I don't know. I joint number two, and then okay. Tim Blake Nelson is four. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. That makes sense. I don't know, that's that's my rough read on it. I think I think Regina King is an undisputed number one, and then yeah. I could be talked into flipping several of those around. They're all so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. So back in the first episode, we kind of did our little rankings of all the Watchmen ephemera that's kind of existed. Yes. Where would this? slot into your list like did this impress you more than Minutemen that's so that's so unfair because (laughs) reading any Darwin Cook project is automatically going to give me the warm tinglys because it evokes New Frontier and just like I'm obsessed with how that man draws uh, or drew R.I.P and that was such a it was such a treat to discover you know that this was I didn't even know this existed and it's just like, oh my god, look what he did. And he played in the exact space I would play in if I were asked to do anything with Watchmen. I would fucking just bolt for the Minutemen and say, fuck you, you're on your own with fleshing out these <laughs> these six characters. I don't know, man. Like, I, I, would, I think Watchmen, the show, is probably better executed technically in that it is just operating on multiple levels and, and has all these home-run performances and reveals and all of that, but... Minutemen was just nice for me to read, but it's got its its problems with it. So I would say the show, and then and then Minutemen. Fair enough. Yeah, I think this this would end up at number two on my list. I do have a lot of. This is the first one to me that feels worthy of the Watchmen name. Like, and obviously, I think Pax Americana is a beautiful work of art, but it's playing so much more in the vein of criticism. Mm. But this is the only piece of post. Watchmen work that uses the characters, the, the real characters and the real events that happened, it's the only one that I would go, yeah, this should probably still exist. Even with the controversies that Alan Moore probably would want to see it scrubbed from the earth. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, this this is, like, this proved to me the powers of Dim Lindelof 
and it's it's a beautiful piece of work. And yeah, yeah. I'm sad there's not more, but I'm happy there isn't more. Yeah, that I, it's that thing. Like in the moment, I want more, but if I'm trying to think clearly about it and objectively about it, then there shouldn't be any more because you risk fucking up. Well, it's not going to detract from season one, but yeah, I, I, I don't think you can go up from here. <laughs> no, not at all. One final shout out, the Trent Resident Atticus Rossor is still A+. Plus. Uh, yeah, all just, all of the Lindelof shows have got fantastic. Like Michael Giacchino for Lost, the, the Max Richter score for Leftovers and Resident Ross on Watchmen. Like it's, it, it's a trio of incredible scores and another one of the reasons why these shows so firmly connect to me is that they have such an oral sense of identity yeah, that I makes th- them fully distinct even with the same showrunner for all of them yeah this in the same way as legion i think they both use incredible musical cues and like you know weird wonderful imagery paired with it like they're kind of making these beautiful weird abstract music videos in some of the episodes both of those shows and you know legion is one of my favorite shows ever yeah, this is playing in a similar wheelhouse at times, and yeah, I can go and listen to all three of the soundtracks now instead of just the first one. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. I think I think we're all wrapped up here. So oh, the only thing we've God. got left is we get to tease our next miniseries, which very hastily, as you will find out from the name, was thrown together so that we could force our way to the correct episode numbering for when we start There Will Be Movies Volume 2. Yes, Ben likes numbers and neatness i don't know if this has come across in the podcast uh but certainly if you know him behind the scenes numbers rule his life our first episode of there will be movies volume two will be our 100th episode together which is fucking insane (laughs) (laughs) but only if we can churn out six more episodes between now and then and i don't know if you gave this even 10 seconds of thought before you blurted it out (laughs) Uh, I gave it. I gave it some thought. I thought about like what would what would the sixth episode entail? Would we do Atomic Blonde or would we throw in another episode zero to There Will Be Movies? Yes. The amount of thought I put into it. Well, you had just finished your marathon of the John Wick movies. I have toyed with doing John Wick with Mike before, but Mike is kind of of the opinion. I don't know how much I have to say about John Wick, other than I like yeah. it. And, and I am had... desperate to talk about The Raid, and we've had an ongoing debate about whether The Raid 1 or The Raid 2 would make it into Volume 2 of There Will Be Movies. So as you'll want to do, you give me a miniseries where I get what I want, but it takes it off the main list. So we will be doing <laughs> The Raid 1, The Raid 2, and The Three John Wicks in a series called... Kicky Punchy Men. Yes. <laughs> Secret Agent Men, Kicky Punchy Men... I have no words. Um, We'll see you for that soon. What a horrible taint to an otherwise beautiful podcast series that I've been very proud of with the presentation and the content and the discussion. I mean, we have to to finish on the lowbrow. It feels like we're... Well, we're not quite getting to the point where it feels like we're going to be alternating our miniseries between TV shows and and movies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. We did our dumb secret agent podcast to have a break from the very serious critically acclaimed movies and we're about to ramp that up again so we get another break uh with (laughs) just dumb violence just gloriously dumb violence yeah so (laughs) kicky punchy men punchy kicky men whichever you prefer it will be coming your way very soon this is this has been a lot of fun 
this has been wonderful. I'm glad I I remained spoiler free, other than the dildo, all the way up until now, uh, and that's that's impressive, especially as I'm sure you wanted to just blab at me about it from the second you saw it. But uh... oh, it's so good, and <laughs> I, I'm glad I had I had people to talk to. I I had Jerome, yeah. and I had people in my life to talk to. So. I didn't have to blurt it out to you, even though you were the one of the people who I knew enjoyed Watchmen. Yeah, and I enjoyed it more <laughs> when we reread it. So. <laughs> when we reread it, but yeah. So this has been nothing ever ends. Sadly, it will end. But it now. might not because Tom King might come back to save us in a year. So he might. We might be back with an episode seven. Who knows? Thank you, everyone. This has been yeah. a hell of a journey. This has been. Uh, I've been Ben Phillips, and you've been Matt Waters. I have. Something has ended. Is there love?